This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode 158, entitled, The Consummated Kingdom, Hymn in Revelation 11. Yes, we'll be looking at the hymn that talks about the consummated kingdom within this podcast. My name is Dustin Smith. As always, I will be your host. And if this is your first time, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast and let you know that the Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Now, did I mention that we have a YouTube channel with weekly video content? Why haven't you subscribed to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast YouTube channel? Please go check that out and support our channel as we help promote these very important truths. We are continuing our survey of the call and response hymns in Revelation in order to better understand early Christian worship practices and the manner in which the worship of the man Jesus made sense within a monotheistic framework. In this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, we will explore the seventh trumpet, the second coming of Christ, and the hymn of worship that celebrates all of these events. What can a hymn where the events of the second coming and the day of judgment are praised mean for readers of Revelation? What can we learn about the identities of God and Jesus in the midst of this hymn? And are we to participate in the singing of this hymn in the present, or merely to read about it in the text of our Bibles? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first one today is looking at the fourth hymn in Revelation. I had spoken before that there are seven call and response hymns in Revelation. We are looking at hymn number four. Sounds like I'm leading from a songbook within a church setting, but we'll be reading out of Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders, who sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and of those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. That's Revelation 11, verses 15 through 18. Now clearly we have a call and response hymn right here. 
which means that there is a call portion, and we have people responding to that particular call. Now the call portion comes from the loud voices in heaven, according to verse 15. These loud voices are unidentified and unnamed, but the response portion is given by the 24 enthroned elders. And these elders, as we've demonstrated in our previous podcast, represent the faithful people of God. Now, the interesting thing about the call portion of this hymn is that it is a worship hymn about God and his Christ, not a worship hymn to God and Christ. So it's a hymn about God and Jesus, not a hymn directed to God and Jesus. It's a very important distinction. Now it talks about the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And so it seems that God is described as our Lord within this particular passage. And this might be a rather odd way of referring to God, specifically referring to Yahweh, but it is a way that God is addressed within the songs of the Hebrew Bible, specifically within the Psalms. We can see it in Psalm 8, verse 1, where it says, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 8, verse 1, and it repeats in verse 9. We see something similar in Psalm 135, verse 5. For I know that Yahweh is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Psalm 135, verse 5. And again, we see it in 147, verses 5 through 6, where it says, Great is our Lord, and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Yahweh supports the afflicted. There, of course, Yahweh is the reference to our Lord. So we can see that within the worship hymns of the Hebrew people in the book of Psalms. The Hebrew word there for our Lord within the Psalms is Adonainu, but for our Lord that we see within Revelation 11.15, it of course is in the Greek language. So God there is described as our Lord, and that's not surprising because that is sometimes how he is described within the Psalms of the Hebrew Bible. Now the other person alongside God is God's anointed, God's Christ. And remember that the Christ means the anointed king. So we have God and his anointed king. The song is about God and his anointed king and how the kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of God and the kingdom of his anointed ruler. So the title Christ, which, yes, it is a title, very quickly became a circumlocution for Jesus' own given name. The word Christ appears, not surprisingly, seven times in Revelation. Seven, of course, is a very important number. And when Christ is used within the book of Revelation, it always is in reference to Jesus. And always, in Revelation, refers to somebody distinct from God. So what we have here 
is a reference to God and his anointed king. We don't have a reference to God the Father and God the Son. It is God and Jesus, just like we see in the rest of the New Testament. No surprise there. The reference to a Lord and his Christ has been observed by many scholars as drawing upon Psalm number 2. And Psalm 2 speaks about the enthronement of God's Son, the anointed King. And this, of course, fits the context of our hymn within Revelation 11, 15 through 18. So let me read a little bit of Psalm 2 to really demonstrate the fact that this hymn in Revelation 11 is beginning with Psalm 2 and drawing upon it as it creates its vision. So the opening two verses of Psalm 2 say, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. That's Psalm 2, verses 1 through 2. Of course, this anointed that is alongside Yahweh is later described in the psalm as, quote, my king, end quote. That's in chapter 2 and verse 6. In the very next verse, in 2 verse 7, he is described as my son. And then in verse 12, he is described as the son. So we have the anointed, the anointed king, who is the son of God, and specifically the son. So it's very interesting to see how Revelation 11 is drawing from Psalm 2 within this particular hymn. And we can say with confidence that nowhere in Psalm 2 is Yahweh and his anointed royal son collapsed into a single being or confused with one another. They are clearly distinct there in Psalm 2 as they are clearly distinct in Revelation 11. Now, God and his anointed king take possession of the kingdom of the world. But in verse 15, it says that he will reign forever and ever. A good question for us to ask is, to whom does this he refer? It is bound up within a third person singular verb. And so, since it says that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever, that has brought some people to conclude that the nearest antecedent, which is Christ, is the he that will reign forever and ever. That, of course, is grammatically possible. However, it is more likely that God, the one seated upon the throne, is the subject of the verb to reign forever and ever, since the response part of the hymn unambiguously states that the Lord God has taken his great power and has begun to reign. So since it's unambiguous later in the hymn, that seems to help us interpret this ambiguous section. The nearest antecedent is not always the intended reference, especially when the subject is so obvious that the informed reader would never mistake him for someone else. Of course, one of the key facets of Israelite royal theology is that God ruled 
in and through his anointed human king via the concept of agency. So let's talk about the content of the hymn of worship. Clearly, the victory is praised within this hymn in the wake of the context involving the faithful people of God who suffer persecution. The opening two verses of Revelation 11 depict the people of God as God's temple community who suffer persecution and trampling. The subsequent vision depicts two witnesses faithfully acting as prophets of the church's evangelistic mission to preach the gospel as Jesus did. Similar to the persecution of the temple community, these witnesses also suffer at the hands of a yet unnamed beast, which is cryptically introduced here, but will officially be unveiled later in the narrative in chapter 13. So when it comes to our hymn in question, we see a vindication and a victory accomplished when the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of God and his anointed king. Not only does the consummation of the kingdom take control away from the forces of evil, soon to be revealed to be the satanic dragon and his two beasts, and giving that control firmly in the hands of God and his anointed king. But the consummation of the kingdom also ends the persecution of those who chose to be faithful to God and his anointed king. The end of suffering and the inauguration of a new ruling regime are certainly worthy of worship and singing as our current hymn very clearly indicates. Okay, so enough about the context. Let's move on to our second point. Point number two today is the role of the readers in Revelation chapter 11. Now, Revelation envisions the people of God singing the response portion of this hymn. Let's take a closer look at the contents of their singing. So while the call portion seems to be sung regarding God and his anointed king, the response portion is sung directly to God. And this is not an ambiguous God. It is a God that everybody knows, recognizes, and understands. Because it says that they sit on their thrones before God, but in Greek it is the God, to Theu. They worship God, but again in Greek, they worship the God with a definite article, to Theo. And they give thanks to you, Lord, God Almighty, where God there is described, again with a definite article, O Theos. This is a recognizable God. It is the God that they all know. It is not some unknown or new God. God is clearly the object of worship in their response portion of the hymn that is sung by the 24 elders. So this hymn ascribes the fullest victory to the Almighty, to God, the one God that we all know. 
only God is the object of worship within this hymn. Although it is clear that this one God has accomplished much because of the work of his Son, in whom God has worked many great and powerful things. We also see the descriptive title for God change in light of the arrival of the deliverance brought about by his kingdom. Formally, according to Revelation chapters 1 and 4, God is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Now, here in our hymn within Revelation 11, God is described as the one who is, the one who was, but the reference to being the one who is to come is replaced with a claim that this God has taken his great power and has begun to rule and reign. It is also noteworthy that the 24 elders who represent the people of God are qualified as the ones who are, quote, sitting upon their thrones, end quote. We see that in 11 verse 16, and it uses the present participle, kathemony. These are the ones who are sitting upon their thrones. Most translations correctly include verse 18 in the quotation marks of the singing that began in verse 17. In other words, the response from the 24 elders who are sitting upon their thrones includes verses 17 and 18. The response of the people of God is thus two verses long. And the people of God praise the fact that God's wrath has come with the arrival of the kingdom, thus mirroring the response of the nations. The nations were enraged. God's wrath came. It's difficult to demonstrate this in English, but in Greek, those are similar words in Greek to demonstrate a mirrored response. This, of course, further makes a connection with Psalm 2, as we've already read in the opening verses, where the nations are in an uproar and they get enraged against Yahweh and his anointed king. The people of God also sing about the decisive time, which in Greek is the noun kairos, when three important things take place. So in verse 18, we can see that these things are occurring. It says that it is the time to judge those who are dead, which indicates that a resurrection is taking place. It is the time to reward the servants of God. And it is the time to destroy those who destroy the earth. Another mirrored response, the destroyers of the earth are those who are being destroyed. For the praise that comes from the mouths of the people of God, this God brings about his victorious deliverance and rule by judging the resurrected dead, rewarding the faithful, and cutting off those guilty of destruction. In other words, the events surrounding the consummation of the kingdom of God are part of of the celebratory worship sung by God's people, namely those who hope to be among the rewarded. 
Now, how does this hymn work within the narrative of Revelation? And more importantly, what is its goal in regard to the application required of the ideal readers? Well, the hymns in Revelation are not simply there in the text to be read. They invite the readers to participate in the worship, to join in the worshiping of the Lord God the Almighty, and it invites readers to read themselves into the text as the 24 elders who share in God's reign already, having been enthroned and made kings, and who sing about the full measure of God's rule, which is to come. The hymn praises the accomplishments of God and his anointed king. And the hymn also directly worships God. This focus serves as a means of identifying those who are worthy of worship, and by implication, marking off all others as unworthy of correct Christian worship. Only God and the Lamb are described within this hymn. Those original readers who were tempted to compromise exclusive worship to God and the Lamb with the worship of Caesar, the imperial cult, or the local Greek gods like Apollo and Asclepius would hopefully join with the 24 elders in this hymn by narrowing their objects of worship in a more faithful manner. Since the 24 elders are depicted as those who are reigning already, in a sense, having been made kings and priests, and being portrayed as sitting on thrones, they cannot share in God's rule if they are guilty of idolatry and accommodation. Furthermore, the praise uttered regarding the rule of God and his anointed king that was transferred from the kingdom of the world clearly differentiates these two kingdoms as opposite ends of the spectrum. The worldly kingdom is coming to an end, along with its rulers and perpetrators. The redemptive rule of God and his anointed king will soon be made manifest, and the judgment of God will accompany this kingdom's consummation. Since the judgment spells out the fates of the righteous and the unrighteous, regardless of whether they have died, this summons those who participate in the singing of this hymn to think about their destiny, whether they are acting faithfully or compromising with the soon-to-be-ending kingdom of the world, and to hopefully come to repentance. In other words, the hymn in Revelation 11 would serve to embolden the faithful and to dissuade the compromisers from sinning any further. Let's move to our third and final point, which is the implications for worship within a monotheistic setting. Now, the call portion, as a reminder, is not sung to God in his anointed king, but about God 
and his anointed king. The response, however, is directly sung to God. And again, as we've noticed in our previous three call and response hymns within the book of Revelation, there is absolutely no mention of the Holy Spirit, either directly or indirectly. The call does not praise the work of the Spirit, nor mention the Spirit's activity. The response does not depict the people of God falling down and worshiping the Holy Spirit. It is safe to say that the Holy Spirit was not a part of the early Christian worship at this point in the development of the doctrine of God. The one true God remains unthreatened in his unique role as the Lord God, the Almighty, within the hymn of Revelation chapter 11. We saw that God was defined three times within the hymn with the definite article in Greek. This God is the God. He is the one who is and the one who was. He is defined as a single person because the anointed king is, quote, his, unquote, Christ, indicating that God is a he, one single person. And of course, he is defined in the true worship of the faithful as, quote, you, in chapter 11, verse 17, using the dative singular pronoun, si. We also note that he has a name that is to be feared by the faithful. We see this in verse 18. So clearly, God is the same God that all Christians know. He is the one true God, and he is one single person. Now, in regard to Jesus, he is portrayed as the one who is anointed, as the Christ. Now, the one who has been anointed indicates that someone other than himself has performed the anointing process within the theology of the Israelite king, Anointing somebody is anointing them for their role and vocation of kingship. The anointed king in Israelite theology is always a human being. Think of people like Saul, David, and Solomon. These are all members of the human race. And the anointed king within our hymn of worship is one who belongs to God. He is God's anointed king. So it is not only that there is a distinction between the Lord God Almighty and the one who is anointed, there is a relationship involved. Christ is God's Christ. Now there's a strong sense within this hymn of Revelation 11, 15 through 18, that monotheism is maintained. And specifically, it is unitary monotheism. The God who is worshipped is a single person. The anointed king is portrayed in terms drawn from Psalm 2, where the one who is anointed is the son of Yahweh, not Yahweh himself. God is not presented as tripersonal, as three persons, 
and Jesus is not regarded as a member of a multi-person Godhead. So, in conclusion, we have observed that the book of Revelation is filled with seven call-and-response hymns, inviting readers to correctly worship in prescribed ways while aligning oneself with God's kingdom. At the seventh trumpet, the narrative of Revelation depicts the consummation of the kingdom of God in terms of a hymn that is sung describing the events taking place. We first noted that the call portion of the hymn is sung by the unnamed group bearing loud voices in heaven. They sing about God and Jesus, not directly to them. Their praise is centered around the fact that the kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of God and of his anointed king. We observed a deliberate attempt as portraying this scene in terms from Psalm 2, where the inauguration of God's rule takes place with the enthronement of his royal son. The consummation of the reign of God would be certainly praiseworthy for the readers of Revelation who identified with the temple community of God that has suffered along with the witnesses who have been persecuted for faithfully preaching Jesus' gospel. Second, we observed that the ideal readers of Revelation are to read themselves into the worshipers of the response portion of the hymn, which is sung by the 24 elders. These elders, who represent the faithful people of God, do in fact offer worship to a discernible object, namely, to the Lord God Almighty. This God is defined with the definite article on several occasions, indicating the one God that everyone agrees upon. This God is also defined with singular pronouns, indicating a single person. God is praised by the 24 elders for taking his power, beginning to reign, bringing about his wrath, judging the dead, rewarding the faithful, and punishing those guilty with destruction. The hymn indicates that all of these events take place when the kingdom is consummated, and these events are worthy of being included in early Christian hymnic worship. The narrative of Revelation encourages readers of the hymn to consider the objects of worship that are approved and to consider if the means of their allegiance to the true God and the Lamb will result in being among the rewarded righteous or among the guilty who are destroyed. Lastly, we explore the implications of this hymn within a monotheistic setting. And we observed that God is portrayed unambiguously as a single person. While Christ is mentioned, he is not the object of worship, and he is distinguished from the Lord God Almighty. Christ and God have not collapsed into a single being. In fact, 
the anointed king is God's anointed king. Since the hymn is based upon Psalm 2, the anointed king can safely be interpreted as the son of Yahweh. Furthermore, we saw no trace of the Holy Spirit as an object of worship or even mentioned within the hymn at all. It is a simple and, dare I say, rather obvious conclusion that the fourth call and response hymn within the book of Revelation makes the most sense within a biblical Unitarian framework and that it does not fit well within a Trinitarian understanding of God. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Join us next week as we look at the next call and response hymn within Revelation chapter 12. Do be sure to check us out on YouTube. You can find the link within the description of this episode. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us. You can like us and write a review on iTunes. And if you would like to donate, you can check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. I want to give thanks to our editor and producer, Dustin Williams, for his fine work every week. But my name is Dustin Smith, and until next time, you folks take care.